You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 55. Welcome, everybody, to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I am Chris Lester, your host, and I am here today in Google Hangouts with author and polymath and all-around awesome guy, J. Daniel Sawyer. Hi, Dan. Howdy, and be careful with the word polymath. Math has always been my weakest subject. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, I got to fix that one of these days. (laughs) So Dan's new book is called The Everyday Novelist, not Everyday Novelist, but The Everyday Novelist, Business 101. Dan, can you just tell us for a bit how this book came to be? Well, last uh, November, NaNoWriMo came around. For the last several years, I've wanted to do a everyday NaNoWriMo podcast, basically because my writing as an adult got kickstarted with the NaNoWriMo in 2006. Before that point, it was something I wanted to do, and I had done a goodly bit of it, but it had not been a daily habit or anything I thought was sort of an achievable, normal part of life. It was this treat that I did. And then I would occasionally crash and stop writing because uh, I got rejections and terrible things happened, and it was very difficult. Doing NaNoWriMo that year was, uh, was this great thing. It made writing sort of normal. And normalizing it mentally was fantastic. And so I decided at some point I wanted to help other people do that. It was early enough in NaNoWriMo that I was actually like going to the write-ins with the guy that founded NaNoWriMo. (laughs) Oh, nice. So so this group all helped me. So it came around this year. And so I planned out a 33-day podcast a couple days before and a post-mortem. And about halfway through the cast, questions start coming in. And I'm like, I'm having fun. I'll answer questions. So I took a block of 20 questions, answered them, and they kept coming in and they kept coming in. <laughs> and, they kept, and so we're still going. It's a daily podcast. Every once in a while, there's a break because I'm busy. And so I don't have time to record a block for a few days. Although there is a Patreon reward level, at which point I will make the time to record a block no matter what. And uh, this was going on. And I was getting more and more questions about business. And coincidentally, at the same time, there were a couple of writers uh, networking sessions around here where people were talking about the difficulty of transitioning to writing full time or writing as the main gig and just having the day job or the freelance income be the the side stream that supported the writing as a long term business. And it tumbled for me. I was talking to uh, Michael Totten. Um, Mike, Matt Buckman and Dean Wesley Smith. And it tumbled for me that a lot of what was going on with the younger writers that we were talking to at one of those sessions was that there's a qualitative difference in the way you think about time, money, investment, and everything when you're running a business, as opposed to when you're an employee or even a freelancer, the worldview is very different. And I'd had conversations with you about that. I'd had conversations with other writers about that over the years. And it occurred to me that there were no good guides for how to shift your thinking from being an employee to being a business person. I went home that night and wrote a special episode for NaNoWriMo Every Month, which is the podcast, NaNoWriMoEveryMonth.com. Ding. Ding. (laughs) And it wound up being about 6,000 words and got done, recorded it. And I was like, Nah, 
this does the concepts, but it doesn't really explain them. So the next day I sat down and expanded the thing out into the booklet that you've got now, ran it by Buckman, ran it by Nathan Lowell, ran it by a few others. And they were like, this is working. This, this is, this is the thing, the thing that people need to know and they don't know. So that's where the book comes from. I'm sorry for the long story. I was up till six in the morning last night. And it's now only one o'clock in the afternoon. So I'm a little loopy. <laughs> it's all good. So in the introduction, you go into quite a bit of detail about what this book is not about. So what was your reason for choosing the things that you did and did not focus on in this volume? Well, books for writers tend to focus either sort of broadly on business or broadly on craft. More commonly, they'll talk a lot about craft and a little about business, if at all. But the ones that do talk about business tend to talk about it as if the audience already knows not only what a business is, but understands the basic economics going on, understands the mind shift from employee to business person and all that. And they tend to do that because they're written either by people who are so far past that shift or who never had to make it that they forget that it's there or they're written by people who don't actually understand the business of writing. They understand the business process of writing. They don't understand the business model. They understand the business process. So they approach it like a freelancer because they haven't made that shift yet. So they, they're in this situation where they don't know the things that you're talking about in terms of the conceptual differences. Right. And in order for a lot of the decisions that you have to make as a business person in the arts to make sense, you have to cross this um, worldview Rubicon first. And so this book focuses on that transition and that transition only because bringing anything else in would confuse matters until you get the basic vocabulary down. Why is it that so many writers and other artists are so bad at business? Well, first is that a lot of us got into writing because we didn't want to have to worry about money. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not necessarily because we wanted to be rich, but because the notion of just spending every day slaving over a hot time clock didn't appeal to us fundamentally. Writing was the escape. It was the hobby. It shouldn't be polluted by concerns about business or money or that sort of thing. And then if we went to a liberal arts college afterwards, instead of like a trade school for artists, that got really reinforced because the people that teach at liberal arts colleges generally, with some rare exceptions, generally are the artists who failed to make a living at it. Mm hmm. They're good enough to be able to teach it, but they're not good enough to actually make any money at it. So that part of the entire equation is missing. And there's, of course, the old cultural stereotype of the starving artist. It's a sort of pejorative stereotype, but it also sort of winds up seeping into a lot of people's consciousness as a covert ideal. You know, there's something noble about the suffering and pennilessness of it all. It's a romantic image. It doesn't have a thing to do with reality, but it's this romantic image that puts artists in a position where their value structure is such that they're very easily taken advantage of. And then the way that business in writing was set up before the major change over the last few years, it was uh, very easy to continue on and even make a full-time living as a writer while still thinking and behaving like an employee. So there's a lot of very 
successful writers who've spent the last few years getting sort of caught with their pants down in a business sense because they've either sold well enough that they've never really had to worry about this stuff or they've sold poorly enough that they've always treated it like a hobby even though they've gotten the acclaim of being a professional. Which is how you end up with these people on panels at conventions saying, don't ever expect to make a living being a writer. Exactly. That's been their experience. Yep. And you get people on panels at conventions who've had one or five or 10 books that were really well received. And they're looked up to as serious long-term professionals. Whereas five years ago, that was common. And now you'll still get people on those panels. But now if you've been in this business for five years and you've only got 10 books, you're doing something wrong. (laughs) And that used to be a major milestone in a career. And now it's just the getting started point. What is it that has precipitated that shift? It's the economics. The old industry heavily disincentivized prolificness. They would use non-compete clauses to try to keep authors from publishing with multiple publishers. They would refuse to publish more than one or two books by any author in a given year. And that part of the business was not designed to keep authors down. That part of the business was designed because the publisher's business model is fundamentally different from the writer's business model. The publisher had a list it needed to fill every quarter or every month, depending on how frequently they issued their catalog. And the list needed to look like a certain thing so that the bookstore buyers would know what to look for when they went to the list. And then the bookstore buyers would fill the shelves. At that point, the end customer came into play. So there was a series of very narrow funnels with concerns that didn't involve either the end customer or the writer that were making the business decisions for things. And so there was a a really sort of narrow set of channels. And the really highly prolific authors were forced either to self-publish if they were really ballsy, but it was expensive and very frowned on, or to write under multiple, multiple pen names. And there were only a few authors who sold so well that they were able to convince their publishers to just stop putting them in mm-hmm. handcuffs. People like Piers Anthony in the late 80s, you know, mm-hmm. who had five, six books a year. Dean Kuntz was another one in that period. Otherwise, you get writers who wrote across multiple publishers under multiple pen names in order. Folks like Chris Rush. Folks like Chris Rush. Folks like Stephen King for a little while Mm -hmm. until he gave up that experiment and just said to his publisher, look, I've got a lot of books. (laughs) So um, I'm sorry, did I answer the question the whole way? Yeah, I think so. One of the things you talked about in the book is that most writers don't understand the nature of the business that they're in. And you talked about the difference between widget-based businesses and taste-based businesses. Tell us Mm -hmm. about what those differences are and why writers so often misunderstand which side they're on. Let me see if I can do this without spoiling the need to buy the book. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, a widget is anything that you can sell to a mass market. The the phone here, the, the mouse, the keyboard... Whether it's got a style component to it or not, you're you're selling it based on the function it provides. Coke is refreshing or whatever. Something that a taste-based business is more like going to an Etsy store where you're shopping not because you need the thing, but because having the thing will give you a smile. It will will give you social cachet. It'll give you pleasure, that kind of thing. That's what taste-based businesses sell. And most people, when they think about business, they de facto think about 
a widget based business because that's what we all understand from when we had lemonade stands as a kid you know you make something for a certain cost you sell it for a certain higher cost and when you try to get people to buy it you talk to them about how it will enhance their life and you know you know this lemonade will make you not thirsty anymore and it tastes good too you know the taste may be a component but it's a subsidiary component well we live in a culture that's completely awash in entertainment and we're writers. We are not going to get anybody on the, are you bored? I can make you unboard because they don't have any reason to spend money on anything that will make them unboard that they don't already have because they've got an infinite supply. Mm. What they're looking for is the thing that will make them unboard in the way they want right now. That's a whole different type of business and it's different from the bottom up. It's like the difference between if I'm hungry and all I need is to fill my stomach, I can go and get something out of the fridge. Whereas today for lunch, I really wanted Indian food. And yeah. so I specifically went to go get Indian food. Mm-hmm. Then if you're in a place like Oakland or Berkeley, the question isn't, do I want Indian food? The question is, which particular subregion of Indian food do I want and how much do I want to pay for it today? Right. <laughs> How far do I want to drive to get it? <laughs> it's all exactly. it, it's all taste. And so fundamentally as writers we are selling a taste-based product yeah. but packaged in a way that tricks us into thinking that we're selling widgets. Well, anything will trick us into think we're selling widgets because that's what people who do not have a business education tend to think about when they think of selling something. So the fact mm-hmm. that there is a per unit, it doesn't matter how it's packaged, just the fact that you're selling it per unit makes it click a utility-based or widget-based thing in our heads if we don't have any good reason to think otherwise. Right. Which one is McDonald's selling? Um, McDonald's isn't selling either. (laughs) I'm not going to give away that one. That's one of the big parts of the book. But yeah, McDonald's (laughs) isn't in the food business. And understanding why McDonald's isn't in the food business is is a good way to wrap your head around what kind of business you're in as a writer because taste is not the only thing involved. You talk about literary agents briefly, and one of the things that you mentioned about the problem with hiring an agent is that their incentives don't align with yours. I was wondering if you could walk our listeners through why that is. Yeah, and they never have and they never will. There was a time when when it was good to have one anyway, because communication in New York particularly was done face-to-face. People (sighs) didn't do business over the phone in the publishing business. The same thing is still true to a certain extent in Hollywood, though the change is well underway. Hollywood's still very much a face-to-face culture. So there's a certain utility to having a FaceTime rep on the ground in certain small communities. But the time when that was essential is far, far, far behind us. The reason that an agent's incentives are not aligned with yours is laid out very well by the Freakonomics team in the book Freakonomics. They talk about real estate agents, but the basic agent business model is the same across all industries. So the the economic incentives are the same. The agent needs to turn a sale over fairly quickly for enough money that it's worth the time they put into it. Now, that means they could either fight for a lot more money for you, or they could put pressure on you to sign the deal real quickly so they can get on to other things. And because they're getting, well, 15% in the writing business, which is usurious, 15% take of the contract, 
they're not going to be inclined to put in the extra effort to get what to them is a marginal increase. If you're looking at the difference between a $50,000 and a $60,000 advance, well, that's not worth a lot of time on their part. It's worth a lot of time to you because even after their take, you're looking at, you know, another significant chunk of a year's income gone by. But to them, it's a lot of extra work for only a little bit of extra money. And that difference right there misaligns their incentives with you. Combine that with the fact that it is impossible for them to make a living off of one client, but it is possible for them to make a living off of recruiting clients for one publisher or for a handful of editors at uh, a handful of publishing houses. And suddenly you've got a situation where they may be your employee, but their incentives are to work for the people that are supposed to be your adversaries in the negotiation process. That's a fundamental misalignment of incentives. And even if your agent is scrupulously honest, that will still have an effect. It's going to color their perception of what is a good deal. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. To say the least. And when you add to that the fact that agents are not lawyers, don't understand the law largely, even if you get the best possible situation for the writer where the agent is scrupulously honest and they're in it just for the love of writers and they don't need the money and all of these things, the agent still doesn't know the law. So whatever the agent negotiates is going to have stings in its tail the agent can't see. Aside from the fact that in many states it's actually illegal for them to be negotiating on your behalf because they're not a member of the bar. Hmm. They're still not qualified to do the job. So at the end of the day, you still are going to have to hire a lawyer if you're if you're at all smart. You're going to have to hire a lawyer in order to have them go over the contract and then probably renegotiate parts of it before you sign it. Now, if you're indie publishing, this is doubly stupid to have an agent because there's nothing for them to do for you other than try to publish your stuff, which is not an agency relationship. That's a publisher relationship. Right. Now, this is different from having a agent in Hollywood who's trying to get your properties picked up by a movie house or something like that. It's a different type uh, of agent. The business model is the same, but we're talking specifically about literary agents. The problems Mm -hmm. with Hollywood agents are exactly the same. It's just that the Hollywood culture is such that it's only been very uh, recently that it became possible to shop something yourself around. Now, that said, most of the time, the way that you attract attention in Hollywood is someone down there reads your book. And it doesn't matter if it's an agent down there, if it's a screenwriter, the way that Hollywood works is on the Friends of Friends network. Right. So if, let's see, a friend, friends of ours, uh, T. Morris and Philippa Ballantyne, Felicia Day is a huge fan of theirs. Nice. The fact that Felicia Day likes their books means that sooner or later, there's a decent chance that she will recommend their books to the right people just over coffee. And those right people might be screenwriters or producers who are like, well, if Felicia says it's good, it must be good. I'm going to buy an option on this. And that's how Hollywood works. When you acquire an agent in Hollywood from the outside, what you're trying to do is tap into that Friends of Friends network. The business concerns are still the same though agents in California are much more tightly controlled because there've been so many problems with them. There's agency law in California. That's this thick. (laughs) Um, So caveat lector, but they can still be useful down there. Got it. 
So for this question, Dan, I want you to take off your your metaphorical hat as a businessman for a minute and think about this question as an artist and as a citizen. Now, as a writer, the assets you produce are copyrights on pieces of intellectual property. Yes. Now, my day job, I work in the pharmaceutical industry. And in a lot of ways, the assets that a drug company produces are similar to those that a writer produces. When a new drug Mm -hmm. is invented, the developer is issued a patent, which expires after 20 years. Then the developer has 20 years to sell that drug with exclusivity to recoup their development costs and make a profit. After that, the patent expires, and anybody who has the technical know-how can then copy the drug. So we do this because there's public good in having these things be widely available. And it's the same for any other patent granted in the United States. Mm -hmm. Now, in the U.S., copyright used to be similar to patents. In 1790, when the Copyright Act was passed, you created a work and you had exclusivity on that property for 14 years, which you could Mm -hmm. renew for another 14 In 1831, Congress extended that to 28 years for the first term when you could still renew it for another 14. In 1908, they extended it again so you could have it for 28 and renew it for 28. So now we're at 56 years. Mm -hmm. In 1976, they completely overhauled the system. So now copyright was protected for the entire life of the author plus another 50 years on top of that. And in 1998, they extended it again. So copyright is now the life of the author plus 70 years. Yep. Now, obviously, you said in your book, stories are luxury goods. The public interest in having a story available for enjoyment is not the same as the interest in a life-saving drug. Right. But a huge part of what we call culture consists in borrowing and modifying and adapting works that are in the public domain for modern use. Yep. And what I see is a, we have this progression where the world's creative content is gradually being locked up for longer and longer periods of time. And mm-hmm. I'm really concerned that big our, swaps have been lost too. Because yeah, big that. swaps have been lost. We've got tons of people from the early 20th century whose works have been forgotten because uh, not they're the early, mid. It's the mid. 1923 is the cutoff point at this point. Right. So they're dead. Nobody knows who holds the copyrights or we can't reach them for some reason. So nobody can do anything with those works. They've been lost to the culture. So as an artist, is Mm -hmm. the possible benefit of your copyrights to your heirs worth the risk that your works would be forgotten before they ever reach the public domain? And as a citizen, where is the balance point between honoring the rights of the author and honoring the rights of the next generation to adapt and build on what came before? Oh, there's a whole bunch of aspects to this. Okay. First of all, as an artist, if my um, works get lost to the public because of the malfeasance of my heirs, that's basically my fault because I did not plan my estate properly. Estate planning is something that uh, nobody does right, but particularly authors rarely do right. You can vest your copyrights in a trust that then will spool them into the public domain if they're not commercially exploited properly. You can do all sorts of stuff like that. So me personally, I'm not worried about that because I'm planning my estate to cover the notion that whoever I leave to control the copyrights might turn into a useless drunk or something. (laughs) You can also deed them off to a charity. And since it costs so little to keep things available now, if the charity is interested in the work at all, they will keep it around. Peter Pan is a success for that reason. Oh, nice. Who holds the copyright on that? 
Uh, London Children's Hospital, I believe it is. Oh, that's brilliant. Mm -hmm. They own the copyright to the stage play because they've been able to keep that going, but the book has fallen into the public domain. So Mm -hmm. Peter Pan is a fascinating study in copyrights. Now, you know that I was a free culture activist for a goodly amount of time. Mm-hmm. And my sympathies do not lie with Disney, who was, the, as a company, the primary push between the last three copyright extensions. Gotta love the mouse, right? Uh-huh. But the issue is complicated and interesting. It's, on the one hand, we lose works that aren't in the public sphere. And we lose the ability to adapt and incorporate those works in certain ways, as long as they're under copyright. On the other hand, copyright is not as far reaching as most people think it is. I've actually got an essay that's going to be going on my blog in a few weeks, comparing the um, TV series, the blacklist to the antithesis progression. Mm. It looks fucking terrifying. It looks like they ripped off my books. (laughs) They didn't. They didn't, but it looks like it does. And it's nothing what they're doing is infringement. But if you lay it out point by point, like people like to do in, um, you know, someone should sue type of blog posts, it looks fucking damaging. I should be going to John Blumkamp and going, hey, asshole, that was my podcast. (laughs) But it's not. It's a completely different series. It just happens to tell a very similar story with many very similar points. So it's not quite as expansive and damaging as we tend to think it is. On the other hand, having the cultural touchstones like Tarzan and John Carter of Mars and Peter Pan and and Alice in Wonderland and all of these, these are important for the lifeblood of a culture. If I had my druthers to rewrite from scratch the copyright law, what I would probably do is three terms of 50 years Mm -hmm. that you would have to manually renew for. Because lifespans are longer, and most people in most businesses like to leave their business to their children. I don't have any children, but it seems that if we're encouraging the creative arts as career, having that ability seems sensible, which was the original constitutional rationale. But uh, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't have to do maintenance on it. You know, if you own a restaurant, you still have to go through and fix the building every few years and that kind of thing. If I was rewriting it de novo, I would say three terms of 50 years, but you have to actually send in a renewal note every time you want to renew. And if it doesn't, it falls into the public domain. I unfortunately don't have any lobbying power. Right. <laughs> On the upside, Disney's not really doing any lobbying right now to extend it again. So we may finally settle out where this is as long as it's going to get. Well, yeah, I mean, for them to change it again would require an act of Congress, and that never happens anymore. Yeah, well, that's see, there are good aspects to gridlock. (laughs) It's not just that that doesn't happen anymore. Congress is no longer friendly to Hollywood like it used to be. Right. It used to be they had a, there was a deep incestuous bond. Jack Valenti, who founded and ran the MPAA, was a old friend of Lyndon Johnson's and was a Washington insider with a long political career before he went in. And so Valenti knew who to talk to when lobbying was going on. And then Sonny Bono pushed through the Copyright Expansion Act. That deep incestuous relationship that was there all the way through the 20th century, largely as a result of the Cold War, because Hollywood was America's answer to Soviet propaganda, isn't there anymore. And so 
you know, it used to be there were allies. The majority of both parties were allies to Hollywood and they could push through whatever they wanted. It's not really the case anymore. They've got sympathizers, but they don't have a controlling interest. And there are a lot of, there are a lot of other aspects to copyright that are about to become very interesting that confuse the picture. For example, if it turns out that genomics gets copyrightable instead of patentable, the U.S. could hamstring its own economy. Yeah. So (laughs) the picture is getting more complicated as more and more things move to software instead of hardware. Right. Because we're looking in the next 20 to 30 years of having an economy that is entirely software based. Mm Mm-hmm. Going to the questions in the Q&A tab, Paulette says, Dan, do you foresee any major change in the traditional publishing model anytime soon? And how long do you think the current indie model will continue to be viable? The indie model, I think, is the new normal. It's going to continue to be viable indefinitely. There's underlying market forces that are at work here. In terms of the traditional publishing model, the major change is that it's going to become less and less respectable, especially for fiction writers. It's the new vanity press. You now go to New York because you want someone to tell you that you're good enough. Oh, (laughs) and that's, I mean, that sounds mean, but it's the truth. They don't offer anything that you can't do on your own except approval. I I think they'll stick around at least until the um, conglomerates decide that they're losing too much money and whether or not that will happen. We'll see in the next three or four years, the majority of the big five have been losing money hand over fist for the last several years. They've been propped up by things like exchange rates going in favorable directions for us bottom lines, but their per unit sales are on the decline And their distribution partners West, the major Western distributor is going belly up. So all the distribution is collapsing again because the business model that they were all founded around isn't viable anymore. How can I explain this really quickly? Okay. So the current traditional publishing model came about in the late 1950s as a result of economies of scale in shipping and printing and paper pulp that they replaced the older newsstand model because the economics were such that the larger companies bought up a lot of the smaller companies in the pulp era and shut them down, but retained their customer base and distribution contacts in order to create large distributors and large shipping companies. The large shipping and warehousing companies were controlled largely by the mob. The distribution companies weren't. There were long-term contracts where publishers had to pay X amount of dollars per year for warehouse space and shipping, whether they used them or not for 10, 20 years at a time. And that was fine because the publishers, as far as they understood and cared, were in the widget business. They were creating X amount of product to feed down Y pipeline, and they had to keep the pipe full and they didn't care what they put in it. As long as enough of it sold through at the other end, that they would make a profit. That whole system stops working when small press runs become economical and it started to stop working when the chain bookstores went big in the nineties, Amazon did not destroy publishing. The chain bookstores did the order to net policy and all of the things that Barnes and Noble got so infamous for in industry circles in the nineties really narrowed the publishing business model down to blockbusters. All the incentives pushed New York toward a blockbuster mentality, which stopped them from you know, what they say they do, 
cultivating new talent. They don't do that anymore. They haven't done that in 25 years because of the economic pressures of the order to net and other things involved with dealing with a few big chain bookstores that together had more buying power than the indie bookstores in the country. What is order to net? Um, okay. Basically the bookstore would order as many copies as sold last time. So if you put out a book and the uh, bookstore ordered 5,000 copies, uh, Barnes and Noble ordered 5,000 copies for its chain and only 2,500 sold through, then the next time they'd order 2,500. And the problem with that is that on bookstore shelves, generally you have to have two copies to sell one. Because mm. shelf presence creates credibility. So what would happen is a lot of authors had their careers crushed from really good sales levels down to they couldn't get a writing contract because the bookstore buyers were just ordering on this algorithm with no understanding of how their business really worked. That instituted a change on behalf of publishers and what they were interested in acquiring. It caused them, well, it didn't cause, but it encouraged the major vertical integration that we see today. And that all started back in the mid nineties as a response to the economic pressures of ordering to net. A lot of smaller publishers just sold out to larger publishers because the larger publishers had more marketing muscle and they were willing to pay the small publishers a lot of money to take the problem off their hands. So then of course, Amazon comes in and now with Amazon, anyone can get anything anywhere. And Amazon's got some new competitors coming up in the ebook space that are really pushing out the anything anywhere bit to worldwide. Traditional publishing is predicated on a set of economic variables that simply don't obtain anymore. So I don't think it's going to continue in its current form. It already isn't continuing in the form that we all learned about it. As to whether it's going to exist at all as part of the large conglomerates is an open question. My suspicion is that at least some of them are going to start divesting in a few years because they're not meeting the profit margin requirements. And then those publishers, once divested, will continue either as intellectual property holding companies or they'll spin off or sell off to people looking to run smaller mid-sized presses. I think what you're seeing in small and mid-sized press these days is much more like what things are going to be like going forward in the traditional space, i.e. not publishing yourself. It reminds me of something that's going on in the drug business right now, which is that drug companies largely don't exist as anything more than offices and ideas on paper anymore. Mm -hmm. The large manufacturing and research divisions have all gone away because there's no way for them to know at the outset whether a drug is going to be a hit or whether it's going to bomb out in the approval process. And so everything's outsourced. The people who develop the drugs are contracting out the lab work. It's like mine. They're contracting out the manufacturing. They're contracting out everything so that the company itself only exists on paper. And it works for the contractors because there's always going to be new drugs coming from somewhere. And yep. they don't care what the name is on the bottle that goes out the door as long as they're the ones making it and they're getting paid for it. And yep. I, it seems like you could have something similar happening in the publishing world where all of the printing and distribution processes all get centralized to contractors who then, you know, and contractors like create space and spark. And yeah, no, that's already happening. So, yeah, I think you're exactly right. We got another question from Paulette here. She says, do you think that the current crop of editors, layout artists, etc., who work for the big five will transition to supporting the indie model? If so, how do you think this might happen? 
don't know if supporting the indie model implies a sort of endorsement that I don't know is uh, relevant, but that's already happening. If you're a traditional author who's got an editor at a big five house and you want to keep them as you do indie books, you can hire them. A lot of them are up on freelance. These people are not paid very well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so a lot of them are already hanging out independent shingles. And I think that that trend will only accelerate. And then you've got services like T and Pip's one-stop writer shop, where they're helping to connect new writers who don't know about all this business to all yep. these contractors who could work for them to help get their books. Yep, or Cindy Getty's Lucky Bat Books, which is... And who's what? Uh, Cindy Getty's Lucky Bat Books. She's been going for about six years now, and she's got a hell of a team of contractors that uh, work with her. Yeah, that kind of model, I think, is going to become more and more common. It raises the the interesting problem for writers as they're moving from the past sort of traditional position where the writer's only job was to write the book. Now, as the indie side of things is becoming the way to go from a business standpoint, the writer's got a, a lot more hats that he's got to wear. The writer's got to then think about how do I get the best cover from my book? How do I make sure that my layout is as good as it can be? How do I, you know, all these things. And some people try to muddle through and do everything on their own to varying degrees of success. And if you don't do that, then you need a pretty large amount of capital to be able to invest in hiring those services from people. Eh, not that large. If you're going to hire the whole thing and you don't have anything to barter with, yeah, you can spend a couple of thousand bucks on it on each book, but it's strictly unnecessary. The tools we've got at our disposal are such that unless you're trying to publish a backlist of hundreds of volumes, it doesn't take all that long to muddle through. I mean, it's, you know, it takes 10 to 15 years to get really good as a writer and that's of consistent work. It takes two to five to get really good as a layout artist or a cover designer, that kind of thing. And if you really just don't have the interest or the chops for one piece of the puzzle or another, then you can hire that piece out. Mm -hmm. It's become a much more a la carte kind of an experience. Exactly. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're up to in your fiction? Uh, What I'm doing in my fiction? Uh, Well, I'm just about to announce the release of book eight in the Clark Lantham Mysteries. I'm writing book three in the antithesis progression. Finally, it's getting <laughs> a serious rebrand coming up, but I'm about 40,000 words in. I stalled out the last couple of weeks because I had some personal crap going, but last night I got started again. And of course I was up so late that I forgot to write the blog about it. So I'm <laughs> blogging this daily as I write and there's 40 odd days up. Now I'll be doing a catch up blog for the days I missed and then starting again tonight. So um, that's going on. The podcast is back. The fiction podcast every two weeks. We're a little late on the current one because we got a bunch of personal crap blew up in our faces and we realized that we misattributed a couple of lines in the script. So we had the wrong actors recording lines for the wrong characters. Mm. Stuff that happens, but it'll be tonight or tomorrow. The next episode will be out and then we'll be back on schedule fairly quickly. But oh, it's so nice now. Every time I hear those end credit music play when it goes, it, it's, I'm, I'm back and it feels so good. So <laughs> that's going on well. My, my big project with fiction this year is to finish the antithesis progression because I've got another big series lurking in the back of my head that I really want to write. I've got to get this one out of the way, partly because it intimidates the fuck out of me. So it's a lot of fun, but it's scary. <laughs> <laughs> 
Book three has already completely derailed. I had someone that was supposed to die and someone that was supposed to go to jail and both of them are still in play. And someone else that was supposed to be a hero is turning into a villain and I don't know what the fuck is going on, but at least <laughs> it'll mean it'll keep everyone who reads it on their toes. <laughs> Just as long as it's not Doug. <laughs> I'm not saying a word. Oh, but oh yeah, it's getting it's getting really interesting, and I've been having loads of fun diving deep into history and geopolitics again because they inform so much about the underlying mechanics of what goes on in that world. I've got a few other books queued up for release this year. They're done and they're getting packaged right now. The final Suave Rob book, so we get the full Suave Rob's Awesome Adventures set, is coming out in probably late June. That'll be Suave Rob's. Let's see. Suave Rob's amazing ass saving association. <laughs> He's decided to go into the superhero business. <laughs> Their slogan is we save your ass so you can live to sit another day. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> and we've got some fun, uh, some fun stuff planned for the rest of the year to support that release. That'll be a lot of fun. And then after that, we've got, um, let's see what else is up. A urban fantasy novel, which will be the first of a new series called The Automotive, is finally going to see the light of day later this year as well. That's a YA series, isn't it? Um, it's right on the border between YA and college. The protagonist is is 18 years old in her first semester of college. Got it. Um, but uh, but that one's a lot of fun, too. So. Yeah, and a lot of a lot of short stories. A lot of short stories. There'll be many, many short stories coming out very quickly, too. Neat. Well, very quickly, meaning over the summer. So, Are you going to put them into a collection? Oh, yes. There will be collections. There will be all sorts of fun stuff. Um, I've got uh, several more Lombard Alchemist stories. Those are the ones I'm really excited about. I love those stories. <laughs> is the next 10,000 hours done now or are you uh, planning? We're going to come back for a finale episode. We were sitting actually um, a board meeting because we're AWP is a corporation. Now we were uh, sitting at a board <laughs> meeting a couple of weeks ago, figuring out what to do with the next 10,000 hours. And we realized that the other stuff we've got planned for the, I'm, I keep looking up because my war boards are right on the ceiling here. So all my no, I'm basically looking at my crib sheet. But a lot of the stuff we've got planned for later this year is going to make next 10,000 hours redundant. So what we're going to do is we're going to come back for a finale episode, which will tell you where to find all the stuff you liked in the next 10,000 hours on a more regular basis. So Kitty's Corner is going to get spun off and have its own thing, which is going to be really fun. And <laughs> I'm doing the nanocast covering business and writing. So that takes care of the first segment. And then the center segment where you get to hear sections of stories and whatnot we're going to be working that into some other places where i've got a regular presence anyway so yeah but we kept coming around to do a new episode of the next ten thousand hours and we're like well, what are we going to talk about now i talked about that on the nanocast no i talked about that on the blog no oh well eh. so we kept running into that problem right we're finally just going to embrace it and call the next ten thousand hours a workshop that spawned all these other ideas because that's really what it was. Nice. So we didn't know it at the time. <laughs> so. Do you have any convention appearances coming up in the next year? Uh no. I, I my appearance is already pretty unconventional, so I'm. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, I can't afford to get out to Balticon this year. I'm hoping to get out next year, and uh, also probably going to try to get to Oricon next year. But this year is build year. We've got a lot of groundwork finally laid. Interstate moves are a big deal. 
And they are, they really, really are. And the time leading up to this particular interstate move was a fairly fallow time artistically and business wise for a whole bunch of reasons. I mean, the only things we got out were the crud rat project and then just barely because of all the crap that was going on. So there's been a lot of regrouping and collecting ourselves and we're now regrouped and collected. And so we're starting on the run again. So once I'm on top of the run thing and I've got it going down really well, I'll feel much more comfortable showing up to conventions because I can justify the time away because be <laughs> anytime I'm not at the desk, I won't be looking at the desk in my mind going, uh, if I don't get back there soon, everything will fly apart. <laughs> I'm finally getting to the point where that's not the case now, but I want to build some more runway in front of me right now. I'm just about caught up to even, I want to get ahead before <laughs> I start indulging in things like conventions. All right. So we're going to go ahead and close this up now. Dan, where can people find your stuff? You can find all of my stuff at www.jdsawyer.net. You can see the blog for NaNoWriMo every month, which is just basically a blog for a podcast at NaNoWriMoEveryMonth.com. Or if you are wanting to listen to it at work and would like to support me without joining the Patreon, you can watch NaNoWriMo every month on YouTube. The video is riveting. It's the logo, but uh, it's ad supported. <laughs> and I actually, I get a nice stream of nickels through there and it's all on a playlist. So you can just start at one and it'll autoplay. It's totally work safe. I think I say shit once or twice in 125 episodes now. And that's about as uh, blue as it gets. So it's very work safe and a uh, lot of fun. It's a, it's, it's a seriously fun little show. The episodes it range is. from five months uh, from five minutes to 30 minutes. But uh, I have a lot of fun doing that show. Where else can you find me? Ha, huh? D Sawyer on Twitter. I have a Facebook page, but I don't do anything with it. My books are available everywhere. Buy them, read them, love them. And we do. All right, Dan, thank you so much for coming on The Raven and the Writing Desk. We'll catch you later. All right. Thanks for having me, Chris. If you'd like to share feedback about the show, send your thoughts in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com and on Twitter as Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. To converse with your fellow metamorphs, check out the Fans of Metamorph City Facebook group. The link will be in the show notes. That's all for this week. Tune in next time for more stories fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2013 and 2016 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.